Well, good morning. Welcome to, this is Brian Elliott. Welcome to lesson number two of our roots, the history of Churches of Christ. Today we'll be looking at Barton Stone, the Campbells, and Christian Unity. Those three, uh, Barton W. Stone, Thomas Campbell, and Alexander Campbell are kind of considered the uh, forefathers, the, the original um, founders, I guess, if you will, of our movement. So we talked about Christian groups last week. Uh, by the way, if you uh, check your Friday email, and there is a link to a handout for this lesson. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'll say that again at the end of the at the end of the class. Um, so we talked about many many groups that were um, there were other groups besides just the Stone and Campbell movements that were trying to restore New Testament Christianity, and. Um, there were groups of Christians. We saw that there were groups of Christians in the South. There were groups of Christians in, the, uh, in New England. But the most numerous band uh, grew out of Presbyterian and Baptist churches in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, these were known as the Christians of the West. And uh, they were led by a man who was named Bart, Barton W. Stone. So let's take a minute to look at Stone's um, life, and then we'll look at the, the, the Campbell, father and son Campbell team. So Stone was born in 1772 in Maryland. He was raised a nominal Episcopalian, meaning that that was the religion that his family, or the tradition, I guess, that his family claimed, but probably didn't go to worship, uh, only went on special occasion. In, in 1779, so roughly uh, seven years after he was born, his father died and the family moved to Virginia. Now, during his teen years, he, he attended some Baptist churches and Methodist churches, but he could not experience any kind of dramatic conversion uh, like some people did. Uh, th there was some kind of a sign that he was expecting uh, and a lot of people in those days kind of expected that there would be some kind of sign, some kind of feeling, something that so that you knew that you were different. So he decided that he would just forego religion and go to college and become a lawyer. Well, he enrolled in a school which was uh, directed by or run by a, a fellow by the name of David Campbell, who was a Presbyterian minister in North Carolina. And under his influence, and the preaching of James McGreedy, Stone did have a conversion experience. We don't know exactly what that was, but he became a Presbyterian and decided to become a preacher. Uh, however, there were two main doctrines within the Presbyterianism that he just couldn't swallow. Uh, one of those was the doctrine of the Trinity, and the other was the doctrine of predestination. And I'll expand on those in just a minute. Uh, but when he sought ordination, one of the requirements was to agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a 152-page-long document that is basically the creed of the Presbyterian Church. And you had to agree with everything in the uh, in the uh, the West in the, the Confession of Faith. So, uh, and part of that was agreeing to the doctrine of predestination and also to the Trinity. Anyway, uh, since he was still unable to reconcile these, he answered this way, I do as far as I see it consistent with the Word of God. 
Well, his answer satisfied the presbytery, and he was assigned to minister to churches, uh, to the churches of Cane Ridge and Concord, Kentucky, in 1798. Now, both of these were located to the northeast or southeast of Lexington, uh, pretty close to the Ohio border. Okay, so what is the doctrine of the Trinity? The doctrine of the Trinity simply stated is this. The Bible teaches that there is one eternal God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the only God that exists. However, within the nature of this one God are three persons or three centers of consciousness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They're also distinguishable or distinct from one another. These three distinct persons are the one God. Everything that is true about God is true about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what about uh, the doctrine of predestination? Well, the, the predestination is a doctrine in Calvinism. John Calvin, remember we talked about him last week. It deals with the question of the control that God exercises over the world. So in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Which, I mean, God knows what's going to happen. Um, freely and unchangeably ordained, that's where there, you get into some, some uh, discussion but the second use of the word predestination applies this particular thing to salvation, this idea of freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever has come to pass. Um, and refers to the belief that God appointed the eternal destiny of some to salvation by grace while leaving the remainder to receive eternal damnation for all their sins, even their original sin. So the former... Uh, is called unconditional election. Um, in other words, appointing that uh, the destiny of some to salvation by grace, unconditional election. And the latter is reprobation. So in Calvinism, people who are predestined and effectually called in due time, either regenerated or born again, to faith uh, by God. In other words, they're predestined and effectually called in due time, sorry, to faith by God. Calvinism places more emphasis on the election than do other branches of Christianity. So what about churches of Christ? Where do we stand on these? Initially, uh, we rejected both of them. Uh, but since then, we've come to embrace more so the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the main argument, we've always believed in, the, in the, the, the God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were one in three. But because the word Trinity itself did not appear in the Bible, that was kind of a point of contention. And so we sort of shied away from that. Now, we still reject the doctrine of predestination, believing instead that it is God's will that all be saved. Uh, but since man has the power of choice, God saves only those who repent of their sin and believe in the work of Christ on the cross. Those who refuse in this life to repent and believe have no later chance to be saved and thus condemn themselves to eternal damnation by their belief. Churches of Christ are, um, are lumped in with, with a group of churches who are refer to themselves as free will churches. Uh, this was one reason for 
such a dramatic growth early on because uh, predestination was, was widely proclaimed. And many people, because they didn't have these conversion experiences, thought they were eternally lost. Uh, and when these, these independent churches started coming up and started saying that, no, salvation, you know, we're not pre-chosen. We have free will to do it. Well, then people just started flocking to these churches because they knew that they could be saved without a conversion experience. Okay, so back to, back to Stone. In August of 1801, Cane Ridge... Uh, was the site of the largest and most famous camp meeting revival history or revival in American history. Now, Cane Ridge was where Stone had been assigned by the um, uh, presbytery to be the preacher. Uh, So it was in 1801, and there were probably 10,000, somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 in attendance. Uh, Among them, Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian, and probably folks from other faiths, Uh, but mainly Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian preachers, and all spoke about repentance. Well, during their preaching, many listeners experienced what Stone and others called religious exercises, okay? Uh, Some fell to the ground in a faint as if they were dead. Some jerked back and forth and made sounds like a bark. Others felt bodily agitation coming upon them and tried to run away. Some danced back and forth in place, and a few laughed a hearty, solemn laugh. Now, all of his life, Stone believed these experiences were evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. However, he never bought into the idea that they were to be a universal experience for all Christians. In other words, if you did, good for you. But if you didn't, no worries. Uh, one thing that this... this uh, Religious exercise, this experience did convince him, along with other ministers gathered there, was the importance of Christian unity. He's, in his mind, if the Spirit could come in response to Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian preaching, then the difference between these denominations must not be matters of the gospel. So it, th- this is reminiscent to me of Cornelius when, when Peter went to see Cornelius. If the Spirit can fall on, on a Gentile, who am I to say that he shouldn't be included uh, with the rest of us? So they, they, were, they realized that on a, from a traditional standpoint, they had differences in the way they believed. But if the Spirit could fall on all of them, then their differences must not be matters of the gospel. So the unity among Christians produced by the Spirit should be a goal of all who claim to follow Christ. And Stone, this was Stone's motto, let Christian unity be our polar star. So again, the unity was the, the, unity was the mission. It was to be together as one body. Uh, and this unity soon provided itself in, a con- in concrete action. Because the Presbyterian Synod of Kentucky was very concerned about Stone's open stance toward other Christians and his doubts about Calvinism. But before they could discipline him, he and five other ministers broke away from the Synod and from their own association and formed, I'm sorry, formed their own association, the Springfield Presbytery. Okay. But within a year, they decided the Presbytery itself worked against biblical unity And so they just decided to disband it. And they gave their reasons for doing so in the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery, which was written in 1804. Now, this uh, document, which is very significant in our history, 
uh, is on your outline in its entirety. But just real quickly, I'll highlight a couple of the, uh, the, the high points. And again, this is, this is what they were, they were trying to, to get away from and move towards, uh, get away from creeds and move towards uh, simplicity. So they, no titles such as reverend. Uh, they wanted people to have free, uh, free access to the Bible, uh, to be able to, to, to look and read and judge and do on their own. Uh, they thought that uh, candidates for gospel ministry should obtain their license from God to preach the simple truth, not have to go through uh, some uh, ordination or, or cite some creed. Uh, each particular church would, would have the uh, ability to choose their own preacher and support him by free will offerings. Uh, that Take the Bible as their only sure guide to heaven and for preachers and people to mutually cultivate uh, a spirit of forbearance. So in other words, trying to uh, bring this chasm of clay and clergy, sorry, lay and clergy back together where there wasn't this, um, this big difference between who was in the ministry because all, they saw all as ministers. So um, at the suggestion of a gentleman by the name of Rice Haggard, who was a former associate of James O'Kelly, remember O'Kelly, we talked about him in, in lesson one, he was, uh, came out of the Methodist movement and was one of the first groups uh, to say that they wanted to refer to themselves as Christians. So at, at the suggestion of Rice Haggard, Stone and his followers soon called themselves Christians and established congregations they called either Churches of Christ or Christian Churches. Now, in their beginning, they still practice infant baptism, but soon adopted believers' immersion baptism. Uh, however, they did not make it an absolute test of fellowship. In other words, those only baptized as infants could still be members without having to re be rebaptized by immersion. In Stone's mind, he feared that making immersion baptism a test of fellowship would exclude more Christians than any creed. So they, they practice what's called an open membership and anyone who came and professed to be a Christian, regardless of whether they'd been immersed or baptized as an infant, was welcome into their churches. So by the 1820s, the Stone Movement uh, had grown to roughly 12,000 members and churches spread across uh, Kentucky and Ohio, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, Missouri, and Illinois. That's kind of where they were uh, mainly located. Okay, let's look at the uh, Campbells. So Thomas Campbell grew up in Ireland. His father, uh, Archibald Campbell, was an Anglican who converted from Roman Catholicism. Thomas converted to the Presbyterian Church of Scotland and eventually became a minister for the Ahore Church in Rich Hill, Ireland. And I tried to look up to see where Rich Hill, Ireland is, and there's actually two. They're kind of sort of in the southern central part of the country. Anyway, just FYI. Uh, but while in Ireland, Thomas became dissatisfied with the narrowness of the, okay, now listen to this, Old Light, Anti-Burger, Seceder Presbyterian Church. Each no nomination denoted a previous doctrinal split, okay? So, uh, and he longed for the unity that the early church enjoyed and even made several unsuccessful attempts to unite the different factions of the um, Seceder Church in Ireland. But in 1807, 
he came to America and he left his family, left his family behind, and he was assigned to preach in western Pennsylvania. Um, he is going to end up at a place called uh, Bush Bush Run, but it was roughly it's southwest of Pittsburgh, so think uh, close to the um, uh, I think it's the Iowa Iowa border. Well, he immediately got into trouble with his Presbyterian synod, but for following Presbyterians, I'm uh, sorry, for allowing Presbyterians of all stripes to take the Lord's Supper, and not only them, but people's people of other traditions. And he was eventually censored. Uh, in other words, he was uh, excommunicated. So he began an interdenominational Bible study group known as the Christian Association of Washington, Pennsylvania. Now, had no intentions whatsoever of becoming a church. He just wanted to meet with people uh, kind of of like mind who uh, didn't want to have to deal with all the hierarchy and could just sit down and kind of talk about the Bible. Well, Thomas's son, Alexander, along with the rest of the family, set sail for America in 1808. But their ship, uh, they were shipwrecked off of the coast of Scotland. Circumstances kept them in Glasgow for about a year um, before they would be able to sail again. So that gave Alexander the opportunity to attend the university there. Well, while in Glasgow, he made friends with some preachers who had broken from the Church of Scotland or the Presbyterian Church and had formed several independent churches. Uh, a lot of what they were promoting was a return to the New Testament church. Uh, they were advocating for things such as uh, local church leadership by elders, the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, baptism by immersion, uh, no title such as reverend, uh, and also a, defi a definite separation of church and state. Now, although he never joined any of these independent churches, he did become increasingly dissatisfied with the narrowness of the seceder Presbyterians and begin to refuse to commune with them. Uh, stories told, I don't know whether it's true or not, uh, back in those days, uh, churches practiced a closed communion, and you were given a token based on your ability to recite the creed of whatever church you went to, or a portion of the creed. Uh, anyway, the stories told that Alexander sorry, was in line uh, with everybody else, waiting to go up and partake of communion, and he just kind of threw his, uh, tossed his token and, and walked out. Um, so eventually in 1809, the family was reunited in October of that year. And both father and son told of their separate difficulties with the seceder Presbyterian church. And this is when Thomas wrote uh, what we know of as the Declaration and Address, which is another very important document in our, in our history. And uh, Declaration and Address, he took kind of a play on words from the Declaration of Independence because it was his way of saying, we are becoming independent of the Presbyterian Church. And that document in its entirety, you can find online. It is pretty lengthy. But in your handout, you'll find a, a pretty good summary of, of that. And those six points are a fervent call to Christian unity a strong condemnation of division among Christians, doctrinal, doctrinal differences not based on the express teaching of the New Testament or the cause of division, a simple confession of faith in Jesus, not agreement with an elaborate creed, is all that is necessary for admission to the church, a desire to return to the purity of the first century church, 
an appeal for love and understanding among all Christians. So you can read that uh, as well in your own time. Now, so in, in 1811, and remember this wasn't really their um, intent, but in 1811 they began the Bush Run Church. Now, remember I said he began a Bible study. He called it a Christian Association of Washington because it was in Washington, Pennsylvania. Um, but what is the difference between a Bible study group and a church? Well, I mean, some may be obvious, but a Bible study group, you've got people that come together and they're just interested in studying the Bible. They can be of different denominations. Many of you have probably gone on uh, walks to Emmaus. Uh, if you've been a part of a reunion group, you get together and that reunion group is to encourage each other. Uh, you don't get into who's, what church I belong to. But when you start a church, then you've got things that come up, questions like, well, what are we going to be called? And how are we going to do this? And when are we going to do that? And what is going to be our this? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So becoming a church can become uh, definitely a little more complicated because it requires that you uh, ha have a little more body to it. Um, now, when Alexander's, uh, Alexander married, I think it was not too long after that, um, that the Bush Run Church formed because he and his dad kind of shared um, uh, preaching responsibilities. But he married a young lady uh, who was across the line, which now is uh, actually West Virginia. So, uh, but uh, her parents would give them some land uh, and that's where they would settle. And it's in, in what in modern day, now modern day Bethany, uh, Bethany, West Virginia. And that's kind of where the center of the movement, he just kind of operated pretty much out of there. But when Alexander's first child was born, uh, he was faced with a theological crisis because many in the Bushran church had been questioning their infant baptism and requested immersion as adults. Uh, neither one of the Campbells, both of them had been baptized as infants and their whole family. Neither one of them uh, had been baptized by immersion and didn't necessarily, um, I don't know that they were against it, but they weren't necessarily endorsing it. But so Alexander decided to sit down and study the situation. So after months of study, he concluded that biblical baptism was immersion of believers and not sprinkling of infants. So Alexander, along with his father, his mother and, and, and um, his, their wives, uh, and others in the church were all baptized by immersion in June of 1812. So in 1815, uh, the Bush Run joined the Redstone Baptist Association. Now, Thomas felt that any visible unity was a step toward the ultimate unity of, uh, Christian, of Christians. So he thought that it would be best to be a part of someone than just kind of be out here all by yourself. Uh, it was probably... There, uh, a better part of, um, sorry, they uh, and they would remain with the Redstone Association for about 15 years. However, increasing differences in interpretation and kind of the straw that broke the camelback was a sermon that he gave at, at a gathering. Um, uh, it was called the Sermon on the Law. And basically, he distinguished between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Law of Moses and stated that the law of Moses was not authoritative for determining the beliefs and actions of the church. 
So this upset a, a, quite a few folks. So he just decided, well, we'll just leave the Redstone Baptist Association and we'll join the Mahoning Baptist Association. So uh, that went along for a while, but uh, the, um, they, they were increasingly kind of pushing back again towards this idea of clergy, this idea of the, the, the preacher or the reverend has a lot of control. He was very much against that. And then uh, also, uh, even a bigger one was, is that increasingly his understanding of baptism and the understanding of most Baptists kept getting uh, further and further apart because uh, he, uh, Campbell uh, continued studying baptism and, and uh, increasingly understood it to be the place where God forgives sin and moves the person into the kingdom. Uh, and so obviously they parted ways. Um, and, and actually when this, this happened in 1830 and the Mahoning Baptist Association actually dissolved. So now, uh, just like Stone previously, uh, Campbell was also uh, was, had an independent movement and they were faced with what to call themselves. Many liked the name Christians. Many congregations simply went by the name of the community, like the Bush Run Church or the Wellsburg Church, or like we tend to say a lot, the Johnson Street Church. Sometimes a sign on the outside of the building read Church of Christ or Christian Church. But the name that it would eventually prevail for uh, Camp, the Campbell group for Alexander was the Disciples of Christ. Uh, Alexander especially liked this name because Jesus' followers were called disciples before they were called Christians. Uh, this would also keep them from being confused with other Christian movements, including the one led by Stone. Yet, the similarities between the disciples and the Stone Christians were so obvious the two groups would eventually unite, although without the strong support of Alexander. Next week, we will look at how these two, uh, two movements uh, became one. And uh, uh, then the following week, we'll look in more in detail of how these two unions, unfortunately, divided and became two again. Uh, remember, if you have any questions, you can email me or call me. Uh, my email is Elliott at johnsonstreetchurch.org. And the phone number here is 325-949-3701. God bless you all.